Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good car journey, good dishwashing, good bedtime. Whatever it is, whatever time it is, however you're consuming this, welcome. My name's Matty. I'm from a band called The 1975, and I'm here with The Face magazine doing a series of podcasts where I get to interview my heroes. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with me. I really, really appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. So how are you? Very well, considering yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I just, um, yeah, I'm in, I'm in Oxford at the moment. Uh, whereabouts are you? I'm in uh, Playa Vista, part of Los Angeles. Oh, okay, nice. So you've got nice weather at least. Very nice weather, yes. So, Steve Reich, thank you so much for doing this call with me. I'm a massive fan. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about what you do. One of the things that I wanted to start off with talking about with you, if you don't mind getting quite deep, is that um, I'm actually wearing my I'm wearing a Franz Kafka T-shirt in a, in honor of our uh, interview because I feel like in his work and in your work there is this. I don't know how to describe it, but kind of a jostling with the idea of resolve or like kind of lack of resolve. And obviously with that, there's this inherent kind of feeling of tension that comes with it. But your music seemed to kind of define and open up this whole kind of emotional category that was almost not there before. And I wondered if that was something that you could talk about. Where did that come from? Where was the impetus for that? Well, I mean, suppose music history-wise, it probably goes back to Debussy. Uh, it's, it's just trying to avoid 5-1, and I love 5-1 when you do it. <laughs> but everything has got to be, uh, to quote, Radiohead, in its right place. So uh, for me, uh, I, I, what, what has come to be called modal music um, is, is predominantly what I do. Actually, when you, when you talk about not resolving, there's a... You, have you ever heard a piece of mine called the desert music? Right, yes, I do know that piece. Uh, well, it's a, it's a setting of poems by William Carlos Williams, and, and one of the, uh, the parts of poems that I set, if I can remember properly, uh, it is a principle of music to repeat the theme, repeat and repeat again as the pace mounts. The theme is difficult, but no more difficult than the facts to be resolved. And I take off on the word resolve and make sure that it's never resolved. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the only time I consciously dealt, dealt with that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the normal Western cadences that are alive and well in music like your own and lots of other popular music uh, are difficult to see in with what I do. Um, it, it, so and a lot of things that I was attracted going back to Stravinsky, uh, Bartok, um, even John Coltrane. Um, well, Africa Brass, Africa Brass, I've heard you talk about before. Yes. Oh, well, then you 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 you've got me covered, right? Uh, you know, if you wanted to, um, you know, a musician to musician, talk about well, what is it that, that people got to call minimalist? The, the principle of reality there is very very slow rate of harmonic change. Uh, much slower than, than people were used to. You do find it in John Coltrane's music. Uh, you find it in a lot of non-Western music. And you have to go back to the 12th century to what was called organum, Puritan Leonine in Paris in the 12th century, to have these very long held tones and then decorative uh, 
which was itself just taking a church melody and augmenting it, lengthening it, like pulling out a piece of taffy to enormous length. It's not a drone, it's just a very slow down melody which gives you a slow change of, of harmonic rhythm. And I think that's, that is kind of like the headline about what happened uh, what in the 19, late 1960s, 1970s as myself and, and Riley and Glass and Parvo Perrin and, and some mm. other people. So that's interesting that you say that. So would you say that that idea of this kind of like expanded, drawn out sense of uh, harmonic quality, it, is that something, you, for me, that sounds like that idea is kind of really hit home in something like uh, piano phase. You know, the two pianos that essentially, if I'm right, it's like kind of essentially two pianos that start out in unison and then over this long period of time kind of, move away from each other and come back together. That's, you're absolutely right. And that's 1967. And what's happened since then is a faster and faster rate of harmonic change right into uh, a lot of recent pieces, uh, which um, is sort of inevitably what happens. You start out young, stream, you follow that, make follow what you intuitively feel is the right thing to do. And then you say, well, I've done that. Now, you know, what if I did this, that, and the other thing? And it had more complicated orchestration and it had more changes of, uh, of, of harmony, not as fast as, as uh, what goes on in a lot of popular music, although sometimes it is. I mean, uh, as you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, uh, David Bowie was a very interested in music for 18 musicians. And, uh, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, you hear it. You hear it, Steve. In, even in stuff like there's a song, one of my favorite songs of later contemporary music is a song called All My Friends by LCD, LCD Sound System. And that's completely reliant on the idea of this kind of lack of resolve and this kind of slow harmonic uh, change over a long period of time. I mean, I know that you've spoken about uh, Maggie's Farm being an example of that in pop music as well, of that kind of, you know, like almost like starting to drone. Uh, one of the things that I've found interesting, Steve, not to pivot too far, but I've got so much to talk to you about, is that um, the kind of electronic music and music with synthesis actually seems to be the place that has kind of taken so much of your influence. You know, if you look at artists like, I don't know, Aphex Twin, or, or do you know what I mean? I feel like um, that scene is incredibly indebted to you, and I don't know whether that was something that you ever, I can't, I can't imagine it was ever an intention of yours. Well, actually, I began, as you know, with uh, It's Gonna Rain and, mm -hmm. uh, and Come Out. And those were pieces that used recordings of, of uh, one kid's a black Pentecostal preacher, another kid a black, history, black kid arrested for murder. Which That's right. Uh, and uh, the speech melody, uh, which is really <laughs> hovers over everything we do, even as you and I are speaking, um, it is how we say things to each other that connotes the full meaning of the words. And if you wrote them out, they are different than they are when you and I are speaking. So that 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 is something that I've been interested in since way back when I was a student of Luciano Berrio, the composer. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I, what happened was, is that after doing those two tape pieces in, uh, what was it, 1965 and 66, I thought, well, I don't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, like the mad scientist wrapped up with his, with his tape recorder. So I thought, well, I, 
I want to move this to live music, but people can't do that gradual phase shifting. But I want to go back to live music, but people can't. So finally, I said, I'm the second tape recorder. And that's mm. how piano happened. I put a loop, tape loop of, of the repeating pattern in that piece uh, and then started in unison with the loop because uh, I didn't have... Only later did I start playing with a friend of mine who we, we, we had access to. Is that right? So... So that started out as you fiddling around with analog equipment with just what with two loops across two tape machines. Well, that's how that's how the, 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 make, the making of, of it's going to rain and come out is done with two tape recorders and tape loops entirely. There's no additional sound except the original voice thing. There's additional voices uh, that are added to the, to the counterpoint, if you will. But then the movement to to instrumental music was basically say taking an idea discovered with tape recorders and applying it to live music. And it worked and then influenced everything I did from piano phase up to drumming in 1971. And then after that, it and used other means of achieving uh, similar ends. So is it fair to say then there was this kind of all the, the in your life, there was almost this crossroads moment where if something had moved you in a different way or if you'd have been witness to something else, maybe you would have not even made what you call, you know, like like the music necessarily, like musical composition. Or was that always was that always where you were going? But it, is that always where you were going to end up? That was always where I started. <laughs> I, I started when I was 14 because I heard Stravinsky, Bach, and, and Bebop studying right. percussion with, with Roland Kolop, who was a, a local good drummer and then later, later became the timpanist with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, so uh, I, I was a, intending to be a composer, and when, as a student, I did that. After such, in the 19, late 1950s, early 60s, tape became... A, a piece of equipment that even young people who had no money could afford to buy. And so I had a $150 bonus shot tape recorder, and I and other people began playing with tape loops. So uh, that that was a sort of byway and an offshoot, but it led to this fascinating, you know, phenomena. And my immediate response was, well, you know, how do I get back to live musicians? which is where I started and where I was devoting my life to. So, uh, and I've just explained to you how, how that, that bridge happened mm. back to instrumental music. Uh, and then basically there was no further use of, of electronics or tape until uh, basically what? Uh, different trains in 1988 uh, where the speech melody was married to actual instruments playing that melody. So uh, that that was a, a, a return, if you will, to it's going to rain and come out in the light of all the instrumental music that I had written in the interim. That's so interesting. That's fascinating to to hear that whole full circle. Either way, you probably don't know. Uh, about the time that I met Johnny Greenwood, it was in Krakow, Poland, and one of the other luminaries there was Aphex Twin. Oh, really? <laughs> what he did was a 14-microphone version of pendulum music with lasers and mirrors attached to the ends of the mics. <laughs> so they would say, you know, light beams and feedback, and he's at this control, amazing wizardry, you know, adjusting the levels on this piece because uh, pendulum music is the one, quote, full of electronic piece they ever did. And so, of course, he glommed onto that and did a fascinating version of it. 
That's so cool. I wanted to ask you, I was talking with Brian Eno the other day. We we're doing a conversation It's similar to this. And, um, right, Brian Eno's been very kind. He once said that if it wasn't for it's going to rain, he would, you know, that would begin his career. I remember and I thank him yet again. Brian has this idea that he talks about a, a word that he uses, which is a senius, where he talks about if, if a genius is the, you know, the creative potential of an individual senius is kind of the creative potential of the collective and he talks about how most geniuses whether it's you know picasso or you know whoever we you know goethe whoever we regard it is they tend their, their genius tends to be propped up or in the context of a very very flourishing scene i've i've also heard you talk about environment quite eloquently and how you know, expression is inherently just reactions to kind of time and place. I was just wondering what New York and, you know, like you mentioned Glass and all these kind of people like, yeah, I was just wondering how important or what impetus you put on the um, collaborative spirit of your environment that you kind of grew up in or, or were, were in in your formative years. You know, I don't know. I'm interested to hear about that. Well, I, absolutely. I mean, music, music in particular, uh, is a communal art, and uh, in certain periods of time, well, let's talk about the, at the end of the 19th century, Paris was the center of the artistic world. As you correctly point out, Picasso is there, but he's also visiting and perhaps peeking into Brock's work and out as he might kind of done what he did. So, but that's a, that's the kind of healthy thievery. That always goes on. That's the life of artists from the get-go. So uh, being in New York in the uh, 1960s and 70s was, uh, I, I lived on a, a, a Duane Street, which is on the lower west side of Manhattan, and around the corner, about 100 yards away, was Richard Serra. Oh, right. And a couple of blocks further away, on, on Chambers Street, was the filmmaker, Canadian filmmaker Michael Snow, uh, who who, who uh, made a film called Wavelength, very, very important uh, film that, again, is a pivotal work in that period of development of what's called minimalism. Uh, and if I if I wasn't around those people and earlier uh, around Terry Riley in, in San Francisco and Phil Glass and I had a moving company and we went to school at Juilliard together, without all that uh, back and forth uh, informally, uh, things, you know, imagine that people in general have radio antennas attached to their ears. <laughs> and if you're all in the same area and you have those antenna, then you're going to pick up the same stations. <laughs> so uh, people like Riley and Glass and, and Sarah and Saul and myself were, were, were tuning into similar stations. And uh, the results are what they are. That's fascinating. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. It's staying in the kind of idea of like New York and stuff like that, because for me, I don't know how, how you create, but my office is on the west side of London, and I tend to stay a lot of the time on the east side of London. So I do a lot of traveling, a lot of my kind of music consumption or listening to music and coming up with ideas kind of happens on trains and whilst I'm traveling. And I think that I've always loved, you know, Baudelaire's idea of like flaneur, you know, kind of walking There's another Parisian kind of idea, you know, walking through the streets just to kind of appreciate its own, its own beauty. 
And I see myself as quite like a, a, a voyeur. And I feel that like the active part of my creative ideas come in those moments. And I, it's just basically me struggling to kind of uh, capture them. Very seldom do I sit down and have the ability to kind of write in the way that I do when I'm out and about. And I was just wondering, like, because I know that in, before you, I don't know if it was before or after you went to New York, but you spent time as like a taxi driver in San Francisco and stuff like that. Obviously your music's so interpretive, but it feels so much like being in like the center of a cosmopolitan place, or it feels very much like in tune with kind of life and movement and the passing of time. And I just wondered whether, whether that would, there was any kind of truth in that interpretation. Well, I, when I was a taxi driver, I actually was recording people unbeknownst to them and making a tape piece out of it. So I bugged the cab. Uh, but then uh, we moved out of New York City in 2006 uh, just to avoid the noise. And we live about 50 miles north of there. Although at the moment, as they say, I'm out in Los Angeles visiting our son. But, uh, and up there, I do spend time in the car. But generally, I'm, uh, and I, I am listening. I tend to listen to either the news or the classical station. Um, but uh, I do agree totally with your uh, assessment of how the street, <laughs> taken in its most general sense, the pace of your daily life influences your music. You know, fish don't think about it, but the water has a big impact on their lives. Right. Uh, and we don't when we don't think about, you know, all the things you've mentioned, uh, being in the tube or being in a taxi or walking the streets, you're not thinking about, uh, I'm, I may be thinking about a piece or I may not, but these other things are happening and they will absolutely affect your music and if they don't then there's something you probably aren't a very interesting musician or composer because you're somehow insulated from the reality that's around you I think that might have been the case uh, unfortunately when the uh, 12 tone serial uh, phenomena hit uh, back in, in the 50s uh, and, and as I was coming up I mean it was very much kind of like you know do this or be ignored, that kind of uh, situation. And I always felt it was like, well, it was real for bombed out Cologne in 1946 and 47, or even, you know, World War One Vienna, but it right. came totally out of place with, you know, 1960s New York and California. So that I became sort of increasingly aware of all the things we were talking about during that period of time, because I felt like, you know, I, I went to John Coltrane, I went to Miles Davis. I mean, what is this with, you know, the dark brown angst of Vienna? It's, it's real, but it's not happening at this moment. It's someone else's reality. Right. And it was kind of about the truth of your time. Like, I suppose like, any great artist desires to document their time and their environment, right? And they don't have to think about it. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing they don't think about it. Otherwise, you get Americana or all kinds of things like that. It just happens. Will you just talk to me a little bit about 12 in music? <laughs> you, you know too much. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm such a big fan and I've got this opportunity and I've had, honestly, I've thought about, you know, what would you ask and stuff like that. And to be honest with you, and it's for the people that are listening. Well, no, I'll just let you explain probably what I mean. Well, when I was a student uh, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, Self-tone music was 
the predominant language. And as a matter of fact, it was already changing Superless and Stockhausen and Dario into what became known as serial music, um, which was basically a further complication and mechanization of all aspects of music, not just the order of the notes, but the order of the rhythms and the dynamics and the orchestration, etc. Um, and uh, in this uh, domination of 12, uh, I uh, found myself spontaneously making pieces like piano phase and um, violin phase and uh, then drumming. And they're all basically pieces rhythmically which divide into subdivisions of 12, whether it's 6 and 6 or 4 times 3 or 3 times 4. And I began to also get interested in African drumming at that point through a book called Studies in African Music by the Englishman A.M. Jones, who spent mm-hmm. most of his life in what was then Rhodesia. And again, he pointed out that their basic patterns are often in divisions or multiplications of what we would call 12. And I began realizing that in terms of musical rhythm, 12 is a magic number in terms of flexibility and ambiguity. And if you are going to be writing something that is repetitive, then if that music itself is inherently ambiguous and lends itself to reinterpretation, unpredictably, in the ear of the listener, you're on much more solid ground than if you go to, um, I mean, people are going to walk out, and they should, because Mm. that repetition is, in fact, boring. But if you have a a very uh, strong reality that is constantly keeping people really listening to what what is, quote, not changing, then you have uh, a different reality and one that is not boring at all. That is so fascinating. And it's so true. And have you heard this whole thing about, I've heard maths, maths friends of mine talk about how if we had the relationship globally, you know, or on a societal level with the number 12 in the way that we do with 10, we kind of round everything off to 10. And apparently, I'm not very good at maths, but if we did everything by 12, it would be way more streamlined. Well, I, I, I can't. I, I, Ignorance. <laughs> but I tell you what, if we ever get out of this um, pandemic situation, Steve, and I, my, I find myself either in New York or wherever you are. You're in. Do you live in Los Angeles now? No, we're visiting our son, and then we were going to leave in March. But when the when the pandemic hit, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to go to LAX. So we're just staying put, waiting to figure out how to outlast it. You know, I'm a, I'm a senior citizen, so I'm a vulnerable type. So. Uh, I spend half my days ordering groceries online. How are, you, how are you holding up under the present situation? I'm doing all right. I'm Luckily, I'm in the studio, and, and it's kind of like a countryside studio, and we had a couple of projects that were lined up for later in the year. So I've gone into making a little bit of music. I'm doing some stuff kind of slightly in collaboration, a little bit with, in, with Brian and stuff like that. Um, so I'm just I'm messing around. If you ever wanted to do anything, we should do something. But I was going to say, if I... When I am next in New York, it would be lovely to maybe grab some dinner and talk about the number 12. <laughs> You're on. I, 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 I'll ever get safely back to the East Coast. I want to thank you, I want to thank you again. I, I, heard, I heard both your solo version and, of course, the, the ensemble version of I Love Jesus Christ, God Bless America. And your persona, particularly in the solo, is exceedingly quiet and reserved. Uh, as you may have noticed. So to hear you on the phone is like, 
you know, who is this guy? <laughs> you have very different realities, which is good, which is great. I think that that the, the, the Allah Jesus Christ, God bless America, is uh, wonderfully, uh, deceptively simple and successful. So congratulations, and I know you've got probably very different things to do, but keep it up. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll keep in touch, Steve. And again, thank you so much. This has been like not only a you know a great thing for me to be doing, but it's like a bit of a a, a, a teenage dream of mine. So thank you so much. Thank you, Maddie. Be well. The, the, the face, 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 face.